Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be Bibles in the pew backs uh, in front of you. And if you don't have access to either uh, of those Bibles, most of the text that uh, we'll be talking about should be on our screen. Uh, We've been in the midst of a short series uh, called Baby Names. And uh, we've been exploring some of the names of Jesus, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Last week, we kind of narrowed our focus in, and we looked at the name of Jesus, the proper name of Jesus. Uh, Why was it significant that God the Father uh, said to name this child, this fully God, fully man, human being born into the world, why was it significant that they name him Jesus? That's what we looked at last week. And this morning, we're going to be looking at some of the titles of Jesus. So I trust that uh, you have your Bible out. Uh, We'll be in several parts of mostly the New Testament. So if you want to start in the book of Acts, that's where we're going to begin, Acts chapter 2. But we'll be all over the place. We'll be in Acts. We'll be in John. We'll be in Matthew. So it'll be a bit of a Bible trivia, kind of flipping around uh, as you can. So thanks for being here. Glad you're with us this morning as we continue our series, uh, learning and examining and hoping uh, that we come to love uh, Jesus and appreciate and serve him uh, more deeply by examining just who he is, his names and his titles. So let's pray together and uh, then we'll dive right into this sermon. So let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you for the morning. It's so good for us to come together, in particular during this season, and uh, with uh, the beauty of the snow falling and the lights that are uh, on the Christmas tree and all of the decorations of the season, uh, it's easy to be enamored with the Christmas season. But my prayer and my hope for myself and for this body of believers is that we would be more enamored with your Son, Jesus Christ, this Christmas season, uh, that we would love him more fully, that we would obey him uh, more deeply, that we would feel uh, more passionately in love with him uh, because of this Christmas season, more than the lights and the trees and the parties and everything that comes with it. That's so fun. And you've blessed us with that, that tremendously. But we want Christ to be the center, in particular during this time. We want our focus to be on him. Father, I pray, especially as we look at the titles that you have given your son, uh, Holy Spirit, as we look at the titles that you preserve through the, through the scripture that teach us the person and the work of Christ, both historically and in our very life, I pray that you would make these titles of Jesus rich and real to us, that they would not merely just be words on a page, but they would be uh, functions of the person of Jesus in our lives. And so would you come and would you convict us where we need convicting? Would you encourage us where we need to encourage? Would you bring repentance where it's needed? Would you bring uh, joy and peace where it's needed? And may you be honored and may you be glorified in the midst of it. We pray it in the great name of Jesus, that is Yahweh saves, God's salvation. Jesus, you are our Savior, and you bring salvation holistically to us, and we're so very grateful for it. It's in that name, the name above every name, that all of God's people say, amen. So uh, I thought about this morning bringing up my wife's uh, wedding ring uh, and engagement ring because uh, the opening illustration is about a wedding ring. Uh, When it was time for uh, us to get engaged, uh, my wife knew that it was coming. We had talked about it, and we kind of joked that we had already set the, uh, set the date, and we had already reserved uh, the church where we were going to be married before I proposed to her. So we were sure, uh, we thought, uh, we were sure that we were going to get married. And so it was a done deal, and yet I hadn't, had not engaged. I hadn't purchased a ring yet. It was in the works. In, in fact, there was a particular ring that I wanted, and I was having it specially done, handmade for her. So it was kind of delayed. And so I was kind of in an awkward position. 
She knew that I was going to propose to her. She just didn't know when. And so I wanted to be spontaneous and fun and unique. But it's kind of hard to do that when you know that it's coming. And so I've told the story of how that happens before. But what I want to talk about is a little bit about the, the, the process that I went through in buying a ring. Now, uh, men, if you're married, you've probably gone through the process of looking for an engagement and or a, a, wedding, a wedding ring. And I had never done that before, obviously, and uh, I didn't know much about jewelry. And so when I went to find and uh, to look at wedding rings, we, we kind of had a bit of an education. And uh, to, be, uh, to be simple, uh, they told us there's four things you need to remember about a diamond. Four things, and they call them the four C's. Mark, do you know them since you just got engaged? I won't put you on the spot, but there are four things. If I forget, you let me know, okay? Four things. Uh, Number one is color, right? So the color of the diamond. Uh, Number two is clarity. That is, I guess, how clear it is. Uh, Number three is cut. And number four is the all-important what? Carrot. Now, see, ladies, you know that, right? You know about the carrot. That's, That's most important to you. So when we go ring shopping... That's the, the dominant C, is the carrot that, that you have in mind. However, uh, what I, I, I learned was that mostly, m- most important was not the, the carrot, but was actually the cut. Uh, they said that was the most important thing, and I just thought the cut was kind of the shape of the ring, right? What shape is it going to be in? But I found out that the cut is a little bit more than the shape. It's actually about how many facets are on the diamond, and therefore the more facets, I believe, the more uh, able uh, it is to reflect light, therefore the more easily you can allow the diamond to sparkle. So when you're talking about a diamond ring that just sparkles, it's gl- it glows, you're not talking about the carrot, you're talking about the cut. And I think you're talking about the facets, the multi-facets of that particular diamond. So why are we talking about diamonds? Well, we're talking about diamonds because I think that the name and the titles of Jesus are very much like a diamond. I would compare uh, the diamond itself to the name of Jesus. It's glorious. It's, it's full. It's, it's wonderful. It's brilliant. And yet there are many facets to the to the name of Jesus, right? It's a multifaceted name. And what we're going to see this morning is that the more facets, the better. And what I want to do this morning is to begin to look at the facets of what I would call the titles of the name of Jesus. His titles, uh, that is, his formal titles, his position, uh, if you will. And then for the next couple of weeks, we will see what I will call uh, names of description, that is, they talk about the person and work of Christ and who, who he is and what he does. So we'll talk about, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life, right? I am the alpha and, and the omega. That's to come. But this morning, there are three, uh, three categories of titles. So if you're taking notes, this is where we're going. Three categories of titles that are given to the name of Jesus. The first two uh, have two names, and the last one has three. So we're going to first look at the titles of what I would call position. That is, Jesus' position in the world, in the universe. Secondly, we're going to look at the titles of his person. That is, who is he intrinsically, about his nature. And then third, we'll take a look at the titles of performance. That is, what do these titles show us about the role of Jesus, what he functionally, actively does in our life? So let's begin then with the titles of position. So what do I mean by the titles of position? Well, they essentially refer to Jesus' rank. They refer to his station in life, his position in life. So if you have your Bibles now, turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 
36 is where we're going to focus in. There in Acts chapter 2, if you read the context, we have this wonderful sermon from the lips of Peter. It's the Pentecost Day sermon. Uh, There he uh, powerfully speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how people need to repent and to place their faith in what he has done. And in this wonderful sermon, uh, which there were many, many people saved, we get this little tidbit. And Peter mentions these two titles of positions in this same verse. He's arguing in this verse, chapter 2, verse 36, that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, because God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised his body to life, to live forevermore, that God has given him these two titles. So look with me now in verse 36 of chapter 2. It says this, uh, Peter says this, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both what? Lord and what? Christ. Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified, Peter is bold. He's speaking to the crowd, uh, many of whom probably were involved in the very crucifixion of Jesus. And he says, you crucified him, but God raised him up. And you can know for certain that God has made him Christ, number one. I mean, Lord, number one, and Christ, number two, because he's raised from the dead. So we have these two titles, Lord and Christ. Let's take a look at the first title, that Jesus is Lord. That's what Christians say. That's what we should say, that Jesus is Lord. What do we mean by that when we say Jesus is Lord? In the New Testament, uh, in other places, it's used in a couple different contexts. First of all, it's used of slaves addressing their masters. So think of that just for a second, of slaves who are owned by someone. uh, They don't have their own will, so to speak. They are for the will of their masters. It's used of slaves addressing their masters, calling them lords. So it connotes ownership, right? It talks of ownership. But also it's used by citizens uh, addressing their rulers. And in that day, uh, it wasn't by vote, right? It wasn't by democracy, They were the rulers, you were under them, and that's how it was. And so you would call them Lord. And so it implies authority. So what then do we mean when we say that Jesus is Lord? Well, it simply means that, in a sense, he is our owner. It means that he is our master. That's another title that I won't mention. It means that he is the authority in our life. More on that in a minute. So Jesus Christ is Lord because he's raised from the dead. He is our Lord, but also he is confirmed as what? As the Christ is what Peter says. So what, what does that mean? We say the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I didn't know any better for many years, if somebody were to ask me, what was Jesus' last name? You know what I would say? I would say Christ. Jesus Christ. That's how it works for us. Trey Sheffer. But that's not, that's not what it means at all. It's not a last name. It's a title. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying he is the Christ. So what is the Christ? Essentially, this word uh, is a Greek word, Christ or Christos, and it's equivalent to the Old Testament counterpart, Messiah, Messiah. So when you read uh, in the Old Testament and you see the word Messiah, or sometimes it's even translated anointed one because that's what it means, anointed one, 
It's talking about the same thing. Messiah in the Old Testament, anointed one in the Old Testament, and Christ in the New. It's one and the same. And, and, and what we see in the Old Testament, to be kind of simple, is that the Old Testament spoke of and anticipated there would be one who is anointed by God, who would come to bring about God's kingdom, and to bring about God's peace, and to bring about God's rule in the earth. He was the Christ, the anointed one. And so let's put these two titles together, these titles of position He is the Lord, and he is the Christ. That makes sense. If he's the Christ, then he is the one who initiated, who inaugurated Christ's kingdom, God's kingdom on this earth. We believe that he will come back to complete and finalize God's literal kingdom on this earth. So if if Jesus is that Christ, then it would make sense that he's also Lord, that he is also the owner, right? That he is also the ultimate authority. Does that make sense? So because he comes to establish God's kingdom, he owns those who are part of the kingdom, and he has authority over all. So let me ask a few questions, in particular as it relates to Jesus being Lord and Christ in our lives. Who is the ultimate authority in your life? Have you ever thought about that question? Who is the ultimate authority in your life? Now, we all have authority, right? We are under the authority of government uh, to some degree. If you're in school, you're under the authority of the teacher, right? We believe biblically if you uh, are in a marriage and the wife is under the authority of the husband and the husband is under the authority of Christ, there are authority structures. But in your life, as you make everyday decisions, as you make decisions about what to do with your life, have you considered who has the last say? I mean, who has the last say, really? I think oftentimes uh, I find myself being guilty of what I call uh, being a democratic Christian. I'm not putting down democracy, but what I mean by that is that as Americans, we're used to a skewed view of authority. In America, authority is granted, right? So that people who are over us, they have authority over us because we give it to them. So therefore, who is the ultimate authority? The people we are. But that's not how it works with Christ. When we say that he is Lord, it doesn't mean that we vote him in. It doesn't mean that we give, choose to give him authority. It means that he has ultimate authority over everything and every one. Jesus rules regardless of whether we allow him to or vote him in or give him the authority. He has the authority. More on this in a minute. So the titles of his position, he is Lord and he is Christ. Let's move then to the titles of person. So the first two were talking about his position, his status. But the second two speak... These two names speak to who he is, to who he is intrinsically. They, they speak about his nature or his essence. Have you thought about this? Jesus Christ is the most unique person who ever has or ever will live. Why is that? Why is he the most unique person? Well, I would submit to you that the Bible says that he's the most unique person because he is one person with two natures. So just think about that for a second. He is one person, but he has two natures. What about you and I? We are one person. There's only one Trey Sheffer. Here I am in all glory, right? One person. But how many natures do I have? One. And what's my nature? Human, right? I have a human nature. But Jesus, unlike anyone else, has two natures. He is both man and God. He is both human and divine. And as we look at these titles of person, they show us how he is both simultaneously human and divine. He is the Son of God, 
showing his divinity, and he is the Son of Man, showing his humanity. So let's first look at this title of his divinity. He is the Son of God. I don't know if you've seen the old show. Many of you who are older than I I am may have seen it. Uh, There is a recent remake by Disney called The Lone Ranger. Um, I uh, have never seen either the new one nor the old one, but I did a little bit of uh, looking into uh, this show. And uh, I found out, as I had a hunch, that after uh, the Lone Ranger and his friend, what's his name? Yeah, Tonto. After he and his friend saved the day, right, by some seemingly miraculous feat, he shouts a particular saying. And what does he shout? Hi-ho, silver, away, right? Hi-ho, silver, away. And he smacks the horse and they run off, right? And as they gallop off, someone would always say something. And what would they say? Do you remember? Who was that? masked man, right? Who was that masked man? Um, He had done something awesome. He had saved the day, and they wanted to know, well, who is that guy? I mean, who is this man? And, And that's kind of how I see Jesus in the Gospels, and particularly when it comes to his miracles. They demonstrate the fact that he is both human, and he is something other than human. He is divine. So when he does miracles like calming the sea in Matthew 8, 27. You don't have to go there. But in Matthew 8, 27, there's this amazing story. Uh, he and his disciples are on the sea, and the waves are coming in this huge storm, and they wake him up, and they say, don't you care about us? We're going to die. And he says, you don't have any faith. And what does he do? What does he do? He stands up, and he, and he literally, he says, hush, <laughs> hush. And what happens? It does, right? The winds stop. The storm clouds stop. The waves stop. And do you know what they say? Do you remember what his disciples said? They said this, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Do you see the parallel? Jesus had, has saved the day, and they asked the same question. Who was that masked man? Who, who is this? Because can mere humanity tell the storm to stop and it does? And the answer, church, is what? No. <laughs> If you can do that, you come talk to me, okay? I can't do that. I don't know of anybody else uh, who can do that because we are one person with one nature, but he is one person with two natures, and he demonstrates that in his miracles. Uh, Turn with me now to the book of John, the Gospel of John chapter 10. We'll look at a few verses there. John chapter 10, starting in verse 24, and we'll read a little bit there, 24 and 25, and then jump ahead to verses 31 through 33. As Jesus spoke about his miracles and what he did, they were to demonstrate the reality of who he was, that he was no mere human being, that he was the son of God. In a sense, he was God himself. And yet when he spoke of his relationship to God, he spoke of God as father. So there's this odd thing going on. He's saying, God is my father. So he is uh, 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 separate from God. He's distinct is a better word. He's distinct from God the Father, and yet he is speaking as if he, he is God himself, the beginnings of the Trinity. So there in, in John, I want us to see the connection of these miracles which were to demonstrate the reality of his deity. Verse 24. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. You did not believe. Now notice, the works. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. In other words, he's saying, look at what I do, and they are to show you that I'm not just a a guy. Jumping ahead to verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. 
Why would they do that? Well, we'll see. But Jesus said to him, I've shown you many good works. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For, for which of these do you stone me? We are not, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere what? Man, claim to be what? God. So he claimed to be the Son of God. That is, God was his Father, and yet he was equal to him. Distinct in person and equal in divinity. So he is God the Son. But what about the other nature? He, excuse me, God, uh, Son of God. But what about the other nature? That is the Son of Man. We're not going to look at a verse here, but numerous times in the Gospels, I think 89, last I counted, some 89 times Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. I think it was his favorite self-designation. He liked calling himself that. So what does that mean? If he is the Son of God, indicating that he's fully divine, the Son of Man would indicate that he is fully human. It was a title, and it is a title that links him to our humanity. That is, he is fully human, just as we are. And it also indicates that he would suffer for us in his humanity. So let me ask you a question. We get past the titles a bit. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that he is one person and two natures, that he is both Son of God and Son of Man? Let me just give you a couple really big reasons. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, and if you think that he's your ticket to heaven, and if you think that he can save you, it matters to the utmost that he is God and man. So, Jesus as fully God. Let's start there. Why does it matter that he is fully God? It matters, at least in part, or uh, one reason, is because only God, because only God can live the sinless life that we needed. Only God can live in perfect obedience, which is what God requires of us as a human being. God requires perfection. None of us are perfect. We all sin. We talked about that last week. And so we need in our substitute someone who can. We need a human being who can, but we also need somebody who can live perfectly. And I don't know about you, but what's the old saying? Uh, To err is what? Human. To err is human. And that indicates to us that as a human being in our nature, to err or to sin, that's, that's a part of our humanity. So Jesus was fully human, but he also had to be fully God to not sin. And that's what the Bible claims. That's what he claimed was that he was without sin. And so, therefore, if you want him to be your savior and to be your substitute, you need him to be the son of God, but you also need him to be the son of man. You also need him to be fully like you, right? Jesus as fully man matters because only a human could bear the penalty that we deserve. So we needed perfect obedience. He provided that for us. We needed a substitute to die for our sins in our place, and he had to be fully human to do that as well. Uh, Glenn's going to cue up a, a short clip here. It's about two or three minutes from the movie The Hunger Games. Uh, not the new one that's coming out, but the old one. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Hunger Games, uh, but here's a short bit of context uh, to maybe help understand the clip here. Uh, essentially, uh, there is uh, something called The Hunger Games, and those in authority have however many districts in their region, and they pick a young man and a young woman, I think between the ages of 12 and 18, to represent their district in what they call the Hunger Games. And it's essentially a brutal fight to the death where only one survives. And they pick these kids, and essentially being picked means, well, you're most likely going to die, right? Whatever the chances are, one in however many. Uh, So your chances of survival 
uh, are not very good. In this scene here, uh, the main character, Katniss Everdeen, uh, here uh, is allowed to take her sister's place. I don't want to spoil it, but she's allowed to take her sister's place because she has the same nature as her sister. She fits the same criteria as her sister. She's female. She's 18 to 20. She's from the same district. So let's watch this short clip together. Primrose Everdeen. Where are you, dear? Come on up. Well, come on up. Volunteer. Uh, Mr. Mayor. I need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. No. Go find mom. No. Grim, go find mom. I know. No. So sorry. No. Go find mom. No. Grim, leave. Go find mom. No. No. Dramatic turn of events here in District 12. Yes, well. District 12's very first volunteer. Bring her up. Come on, dear. What's your name? Katniss Everdeen. Well, I bet my hat that was your sister, wasn't it? Yes. Let's have a big hand for our very first volunteer, Katniss Everdeen. For the boys. Peter Malark. Shake hands. Happy Hunger Games, and may the odds be ever in your favor. All right, a moving scene of substitution, a moving scene of somebody volunteering to take the place of the almost imminent death of someone else, all because she had the same nature. She could do it. In a similar way, the Bible tells us that Jesus had to become fully human. He had to become fully human because we, uh, like the little girl that was chosen, were not 
uh, destined towards uh, almost death, but imminent death, imminent physical and imminent spiritual death. And we needed someone to say, I volunteer as tribute. We needed someone to say, I will take your place. But for Jesus to do that, he had to be like us in every way to be a fit and adequate substitution. So why does it matter that he is the son of God and the son of man? It matters. It makes every difference. Let's take a look now at our third set of titles. We've seen the titles of position and the title of person. Thirdly, we see titles of performance. These titles get a little bit closer to home because they speak to the function and the activity of Jesus. Uh, It speaks to his work in our lives. And consequently, it relates to the three main leadership roles that we see coming up in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see the, the, the three main offices, if you will, the three main functions of leadership was that of prophet and priest and king. And we see, interestingly enough, that Jesus is called each of these in the New Testament. First of all, he's called a prophet. He's called the prophet. Uh, In the Old Testament, prophets, to be short, were essentially God's mouthpieces. They say, thus saith the Lord. I am speaking uh, for God. They revealed God's truth. They confronted sin oftentimes. That's why people didn't like the prophets. They often got killed and martyred because they said, what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop. And so they killed him. Right? So prophets, being a prophet was a tough gig. They confronted sin. They gave life direction. They spoke into the life of the people to teach them about God and about how they should live. And in Matthew 13, verse 56, Jesus here identifies himself as a prophet. Let's read it together. Here in his hometown, he comes and he does miracles, and essentially they reject him. They reject him in his own, t- own hometown, the, the place that he grew up, the place where he is known the best. And he comes back there, and they reject him. Verse 56, And they took offense at him, it says. But Jesus said to them, A what? A prophet, referring to himself. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, and in his own hometown. And so Jesus referred to himself as a prophet. I'd like to read a, a few quotations by uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll in his book, Vintage Jesus. I think he, he explains the role of Jesus as prophet in our life very helpfully. So I'll read this uh, with you. He says this, As a prophet, Jesus is to be understood as the truth-telling, boldly confrontational preacher who attacks our sin, attacks our folly and our rebellion by rebuking us and commanding us to repent. And so he says Jesus has a prophetic place in our life. He shows us where we're going astray. He shows us where we're going wrong. And he says practically, then for those of us who name the name of Jesus, what does it look like if Jesus is not fulfilling the role of of prophet? So what does it look like for you to name the name of Christ, but for him not to be prophet? He says this. He says if we think that Jesus, quote, would never offend us, he would never raise his voice, he would never hurt our feelings or speak Uh, harshly or command individuals to repent with a sense of urgency. So I ask you, is Jesus the prophet to you? Does he play that role in your life? Do you think that he would call out and attack sin, not because he hates you, because he loves you, because he wants what is best for you, and God's way is always best? Is he the prophet in your life? Secondly, Jesus is priest. Not only does he speak to us, but he intercedes for us. In the Old Testament, there was a whole system of priesthood. They would hear people's sins. They would pray for the people. Most significantly, they, were, they would offer animal sacrifices for the sins of the people. They would speak blessings over the people. And when we turn to the New Testament book of Hebrews, 
If you want to turn there with me, you can. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. That chapter, and in that section in Hebrews, speaks most significantly of Jesus as the ultimate priest. It speaks to us why Jesus was superior than all of the priests in all of the Old Testament. Unlike them, he was a sinless priest. He didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin because he was sinless. And it also says that he made a better sacrifice, better than the blood of goats and bulls and other animals, that he gave his very life, the precious blood of the sinless man. And today he still acts as our priest. The book of Hebrews, it's a wonderful portrayal of the priesthood of Jesus that even now, after being both our priest and our sacrifice, he makes intercession for us. That means he prays to us before the Father, enabling us to worship, enabling us to pray and to come to him and to receive help from God. Hebrews four fifteen and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weakness because he's human. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So what should we do? What does it matter? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. That is the forgiveness of our sins. As Christians, we still sin. Shocking. We still do. We don't want to, but we do. And when we do, we come to the Father to receive mercy through the blood of Christ and our faith in him. And... It says to find grace to help us in our time of need. Have you ever been in a time of need? Have you ever been in a time uh, of temptation, of difficulty, uh, of hardship, and you don't know how to respond? Have you ever been in a time of need? What this shows us is that we can go to the Father with confidence because Jesus is interceding. Again, Mark Driscoll is really helpful here. He says this, Practically, this means that Jesus actually knows. He actually loves us. He actually pays attention to our lives, and he cares for us. It is Jesus, our priest, who knows every hair on our head, every day of our lives, every longing of our hearts, and every thought in our mind. And at this very moment, he says, and Hebrews says, Jesus is bringing our hurts, our sufferings, our needs, and our sins to the Father in a prayerful and loving way as our high priest, Jesus, whom as our priest not only tells us what to do, excuse me, as our prophet not only tells us what to do, but he also makes new life and obedience possible by his loving, compassionate, patient service to us as a faithful priest. What a wonderful thing that Jesus is our high priest, enabling us that we can come to him in times of need. So what about our last title of performance? Jesus speaks to us as prophet. He intercedes for us as priest, and he rules over us as king. Jesus is king. Uh, In Israel, uh, Israel's king was essentially to exercise authority. That's what kings did. They exercised authority, but it was a little bit different because in Israel, uh, God was the ultimate king, right? God was king, and the human king was merely uh, a representative, right? Uh, And so they were to exercise authority in the nation under God's authority, under God's kingship. So it doesn't surprise us that Jesus is called, among other things, In Revelation 19, 16, King of kings and Lord of what? Lord of lords, right? We're familiar with that. He's called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, what does that mean? It means that of all the kings, he is the king. Of all the lords that could ever or ever will be, he is the ultimate. He is the ultimate authority. And he exercises all authority in uh, every nation, under every uh, tribe, and every tongue, and every person. 
again, Master, uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll, I think, poignantly describes what it looks like for us as people who name the name of Christ to have Jesus as our king. And then he describes what does it look like if Jesus is not. If Jesus as king is to have all authority in every area of our life, what does it look like for us to not have that? He says this, practically, practically they don't see Jesus as ruling over them. So I want to, as I read this quote, ask yourself, is this me? Is this me? Practically, they don't see Jesus as ruling over them but rather as coming alongside them to help them achieve their own objectives. Is that you? You see Christ as one who simply comes to your rescue to help you accomplish your own ends for your own glory in your own time of need. Does he simply come alongside or does he rule over you? He says, Jesus is only allowed to do so when he's invited. The result is a double life of hypocrisy in which we call Jesus Lord We call his word true and then do whatever we want in some areas of our life. Because, as he says, the pants are mine. The money is mine. The web browser is mine. The food is mine. The alcohol is mine. The schedule is mine. The life is mine. And the glory is mine. And I will rule as king over aspects of my own life with Jesus as little more than my trusted assistant. Is that you? Is Jesus just your kind of assistant? Is he just your aide? Is he just kind of a co-pilot, as the, as the funny little bumper sticker says? And if you have it, forgive me, I'm going to offend you. I don't like it. Jesus is my co-pilot, like you are flying the plane of your life, right? Je- Church, Jesus is nobody's co-pilot, okay? He's king. He is the king of kings. And yet, practically speaking, we all can act as if Uh, He is simply our trusted assistant. So we've seen some titles of position. He is Lord in Christ. We've seen titles of person. Who is he? He's the son of God. He's the son of man. We've seen titles of his performance. He is the prophet. He is the prophet who speaks to us. He is the priest who walks with us. He is the king who rules over us. And so we have been examining this diamond, right? So we've been examining this diamond beautiful diamond called the name of Jesus. And what we've been doing is examining some of the facets. It is a multifaceted diamond. And because the the name of Jesus has so many facets, it's glorious, it's sparkling, it's beautiful. Um, However, sometimes uh, it can be dimmed. Uh, I don't know if this ever is true of you uh, ladies with your ring, if you have one. Uh, but sometimes my wife will say, she she starts looking at her wedding ring and she says, it looks kind of dingy. It's kind of dirty, you know. You wear it all the time, and you're feeding babies and changing diapers, and it just gets dirty, right? And uh, so she looks at the ring, and she says, you know, I don't see the glimmer anymore. I don't see the, the twinkle or the sparkle, right? So what does she do? She gets out a little cleaning agent. She takes her ring off, and she brushes it with a, a toothbrush, right? And then she puts it on, and how does it look? Beautiful. It looks wonderful. The light shines upon every single facet of the diamond, and it's, and it's glorious. You know, I, my prayer for us is that as we look at the names and the titles of Jesus, that that's what we're doing. Maybe the names of Jesus and his work in your life has, has become a little dim. Maybe it's become a little dingy. 
Maybe uh, it's been hard to see. My hope for us as we examine these titles is we're dipping the, the ring of Jesus in this cleaner and so that we can see all of the facets and all of the beauty of who he is and what he's done and what he wants to do for us and that it would be as good as new and our relationship with him would be afresh because we've done so. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus Jesus, you are a magnificent person, fully God and fully man. We thank you that you've given us these titles, uh, these names for us to ponder who you are, what you have done in our life, what you want to do in our life. In particular, I'm struck that you speak to us as our prophet, that you confront us with our sin, that you encourage us when we need encouraging, that you reveal God to us, that you teach us how to live. You want to speak truth into our lives May we ever be listening to you. May we ever be in your word so that you would functionally be our prophet in every way. I pray for brothers and sisters now. Maybe they have hard decisions to make. Uh, They need a word from you. They need direction. They have a sin in their life and they're unrepentant and they need for you to call them out. They have a hurt and they need for you to speak comforting words to them. Would you be a prophet to them today? Jesus, thank you that you are our high priest, that you go before us now and that you intercede to us and that we can come boldly before your throne with confidence, knowing that if we sin, we've received mercy through our faith in Christ and his dying on the cross for us and that we can find grace in our times of need, that you actively know about the details of our life and that you, even in this moment, are praying for us before the Father. What a spectacular high priest we have. And Jesus, would you forgive us when you are merely our co-pilot? We want you, those of us who have been born again, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done, living a perfect life for us, dying on the cross for our sins, being raised to give us new and eternal life. We want you to be the king of kings, not just, not just in the world, but in our lives, over every area, over every detail of our lives. We We want the schedule to be yours and not ours. We want this life to be yours and not ours. We want the money to be yours and not ours. We want the web browsers to be yours and the food and the alcohol and the pants and whatever area of our life. We want it to be yours and not ours. And so help us, we pray. Give us grace. And it's in the wonderful, multifaceted name of Jesus that all of God's people said. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week as we continue the study. Have a great week.